I'm interested in the question of epistemic virtues, their diversity, and the epistemic fears that they're designed to address. Um, what I'd like to do here is to talk about what we might be afraid of, where our knowledge might go astray, where the how we gain, by epistemic I mean how we gain and secure knowledge, and what aspects of our fears about how that might misfire can be addressed by particular strategies, uh, by, by particular strategies, and to see how that's changed quite radically over time. The place where uh, Lorraine Daston and I focused in the study of objectivity, for example, was in these atlases, these compendia of, of scientific images that gave you the basic working objects of different domains. Atlases of clouds, atlases of skulls, atlases of plants, atlases in the later period of elementary particles. These are volumes, literary objects, and then eventually digital objects that were used to help classify and organize the ground ideas or the ground objects of different scientific domains. And so proceeding in a somewhat caricature way through the argument, it went something like this, that in the periods you might schematize by being 1730 to 1830, and these dates are arbitrary and overly precise, um, you had a, a, des a desire above all to find the objects that were in back of the objects that we happened to see, not this clover outside the boardroom, half moth-eaten and half sunburnt, but the plant form that existed behind that. That's what Goethe meant when he talked about the Urplants, or analogously the Uranzekt, or other, other forms. It seemed obvious, the advantage of that. The fear was that you would spend your time looking at particular defective clovers here or there or other places and not understand that they were unified under a particular form that was, that was the reality behind the curtain, so to speak, of mere appearances. Or when Cheselton, William Cheselton in 1733 hung a skeleton and looked at it through a camera obscura, um, you might say, oh, he was looking to, to draw that particular skeleton, but he wasn't. He was trying to use that and then correct the errors, the fact that it was too fat or too thin or a ri cracked rib. Or when Albinus said, I draw what I draw and then I fix the imperfections, it was because it seemed obvious that the images that you would want of a skeleton, a flower, an insect, or whatever it was, was not the one for the skull that belonged to me or you or you. It was the skull that belonged behind all the particular skulls that we might see. So there's a fear of the multiplied variegated skulls or clovers or clouds that we might see, and the antidote to it was taking a strategy of drawing something abstracted from that that was supposed to lie behind any particulars. And so Goethe would say, don't draw, I never draw any particular thing. Now, there was a particular kind of person who was appropriate to doing this, and that was the genius. Uh, and in the 18th century, it was recognized that it was fine for an Albinus or a Goethe or a Cheseldon 
to, to, to make that kind of argument. What happens in the 19th century is that begins to proliferate. And when everybody starts writing down or drawing uh, or painting the objects that they thought should be there and they start to clash, there's a new kind of problem that's faced by the conflict of the myriad depictions of the heart or the skull or the plant world or the natural world or crystals or other things. So the response to that was in part a swing the other way. So the epistemic fear was of this contradictory multiplication of representations, that each of which purported to be the or plants or the equivalent in other domains. But the response was to say, no, we want a mechanical transfer of the world to the page. And by mechanical, it doesn't mean just the you know, levers and, 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 and pencils. It could mean any kind of thing, including chemical-based photography. In the 19th century, mechanical meant all of those procedural uh, developments. So, so the, the, the new goal, and this was labeled objectivity it, for the first time in a sense that's continuous with the modern sense. When Descartes uses a term like objective, he means more or less the opposite from what we do. That's another story. But it, starting around 1830, coming from a mix of literary and scientific sources, people start to talk about this as the mapping of the clover to the page, whether it's tracing or rubbing or eventually in later years photographic representation, in any way to minimize our intervention. If Goethe, Cheseldon, and Albinus were maximizing our intervention because they were the sort of people who could part the curtain of experience, the 19th century said, we want to minimize that because we don't trust the multiplied number of scientists in the world. We want to know what was actually there, the skull of this person in case 23 in the Museum of Natural History in Berlin. And so that became a different kind of response to a different fear that had swung the other way. Now, when you look at things, then now you're in a, you're in a new kind of problem because there are lots of different skulls, each of which is correctly, correctly or isomorphically represented, at least that's the ambition. And people began to say, well, how do we know when a skull is a has a tumor and it's a, a normal variation? So then they started to have atlases of normal variations. But you can see how this leads to a kind of regressive problem that could go on forever because they're in, you know, the space of possible variations of skulls just within this room is pretty large. And you extend it over all of humanity and all of time, and it's extremely, extremely large. And so it became very hard to, to work. The way the doctors used these uh, atlases was to say, here's normal. Here's the range of the normal. If I see something that doesn't look like that, it's pathological. And what actually got me interested in this in the first place was these atlases of cloud chamber and bubble chamber images in, more in my field in particle physics. And there, it was used in a very interesting way. This is a literary form that the physicists borrowed from the doctors, I mean, physicists don't like borrowing from doctors, but they, they did. And they said, though, that if you see an image that, that is, departs from the range of the normal, what you have is a discovery, not a pathology. And so the, 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 the bubble chamber scanners, you know, in the dozens at Berkeley or CERN or wherever it was, would, would study these compendia and then 
alert the, you know, the up the chain of command till it got to a Louis Alvarez or somebody else to say, we've discovered something. So one way that, that so the, what then began to happen was people began to say, okay, well, we actually have to use judgment that this pure mechanical objectivity is proliferating like crazy with all of these variations. We need to know what is actually a misfiring of the apparatus or the environment and what is actually a real effect. So the people making magnetograms of the sun said, look, we could print mechanically and objectively what we get out of our machines, but you wouldn't be able to tell what's an artifact of our machines, but we know. Not because we're geniuses. I didn't say that, but the, the implication was not because they're geniuses, but because we've trained. And that kind of trained judgment became a new kind of objectivity then. So you could say, I've corrected this you know, I've taken an MRI, but I've fixed this artifact that has to do with the way the machine did its Fourier transform, and we know leads to all sorts of problems. There were cases where a whole bunch of back surgeries were done because of an artifact produced by the doctors missetting the, uh, the machine. And so that became then, so people began to worry about how you would train people to recognize artifacts and to do it in a way that had a kind of, you know, you could follow as a course or as a procedure. And uh, for instance, there's a famous atlas of electroencephalograms um, that said, look, you do, do our course for several weeks and we can train you to distinguish, you know, grand mal, petit mal seizures and various other things, not because you're a genius, but because we can train you. Now you might say, you say we tried to make this purely procedural, algorithmic. You know, we tried to do a Fourier transform on the signals. It didn't work. It's, it's actually a complicated problem. And they said, but we can learn how to do it because we humans are particularly good at this kind of pattern recognition. So that became a mantra in the 20th century that you have all these atlases that explicitly extolled the human capacity to learn judgment, to, to actually be, become trained experts, not innate geniuses, of which there's one or two or three or five per century, but like we can train, we can train all the people that have to look at electroencephalograms to make these kinds of distinctions in a way that was repeatable and therefore objective, but not mechanical. We don't know how to do that, they said. This is in the 40s and 50s and 60s. We don't know how to make it purely algorithmic. Um, and the same was true in stellar spectra and other astronomical problems. You could, long before you could classify stars by a procedure or an algorithm, people were, became very good at classifying them by looking at the spectra and making judgments. So these are shifts that in response to fears, these are epistemic virtue, to answer your question again, is, is, is the response, it's the it's the Rx to the DX, the diagnosis of the problem um, was some fear. And these are responses of procedure, of judgment, of mechanical transfer to those difficulties. Now, this leads to a question that I've been thinking about in the AI context, which is, so there's a current project that I'm involved with in various ways, the Event Horizon Telescope, and they're trying to make images of very distant objects like supermassive black holes and, uh, and, and, and other 
uh, other objects in the sky. And one of the problems is that the data is extremely sparse and noisy, and you have to extract an image from it. So there are two problems, and I think of them, one of them is the spring of narcissist problem. The spring of narcissist problem is that you can't just print what you see because you don't see anything. So you need to say, it's like if I gave you a bunch of points and I said, draw the best curve through it, you, know, you would rightly say to me, that's not a well-posed question. You can say, draw the best straight line through it, easy peasy. You know, every ninth grader can do that. Um, you say, I want the best circle or the best hyperbola, whatever it is. Then you can solve the problem. You need to assume something, and then you can get information out. And these images have that character. You have to make some kind of Bayesian assumption, some prior, and then from that, you can actually create an image. But that leads to the problem of narcissists. The worry is that you might impose so heavily your prior assumption about what you would see that you would see it when it wasn't there. It's like narcissist looks into the spring and sees his face. But if you don't impose any prior knowledge, then you have the opposite problem. You have the problem of the helm of darkness. You don't see anything. You can't extract anything. You have this sparse, noisy image. So this is a battle that, the, so, so, so then the question is on, on this collaboration is, how do you get an objective image? And there are various strategies that they've taken. They're very interesting. For instance, one of them is to divide this team of a, about 120, 200 people on this, on this collaboration, but the imaging teams are divided into groups, and they're not, they're, they work under utter secrecy from each other within the collaboration, and they produce their images and compare them. Uh, another uh, is to vary the priors and see if, 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 you know, and then the question is, have you varied the priors enough? Uh, would that give you an objective image? Now, there's another possibility, which has been suggested by AI. The AI folks have said, for instance, in an analogous, well, not somewhat analogous problem, which is that the, the space telescope has got a huge number of galaxies, now, more than the astronomers could cope with to try to classify and understand. So one of their first moves was to make this into a kind of public game. And there are hundreds of thousands of people who, who do this thing called Galaxy Zoo, where you sign up and you're given images, you take a training program, you take a test, and then you start classifying galaxies. This is elliptical, this is not, so this is not a galaxy at all. And, um, but people didn't like, you know, then, uh, you know, some people didn't like that, and they said, let's use AI. We can train the computer to classify these galaxies. And so they begin to train the computer to, to classify the galaxies. And then the question is, using these, these, these um, learning, pro the, the, the neural net kind of arguments, they said, OK, so now we've classified these things. It reproduces things we know. We think this is great. But we, don't, we can't interrogate the program as to what it's doing. You know, we, we, it, it's got this obscurity that we've talked about here before. So um, you now have a different kind of problem. You've, you've, you've lost, you've, you've, you've gained opacity and capacity at the same time. You know, you can now classify a lot of things. You can show it overlaps in the restricted domain where you've got, you know, experts have classified and it gives the right answer, but you don't really know what it's done. And then there's, um, in, the, in, in, in this domain of AI uh, imaging, there are lots of interesting papers where they, they, people start to talk about 
the AI and, and attributing it a kind of hum, human capacity. They say it, it mislearned or it, it's, 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 it started to you know, act pathologically here. It's put stripes on, it found a little bit of striping on the snail and it covered the snail completely with stripes, made it look like a zebra snail. And, um, they start to, and, they, and they start to say, well, we're trying to figure out what it's thinking here. You know, what is it doing? And this, this an attribution of kind of purpose and, 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 and humanity to this program, partly in virtue of the fact, but it, you know, that it seems to be acting in a, making human kinds of errors, but then you can't ask it what it's doing. And that became, that's become a big issue. So that's one of the struggles is you want You'd like the AI to take over some of this task as a way of solving the objectivity problem, but then in, in response, you gain an opacity problem. And that happens in a lot of domains. In the, my contribution for the book, I talked a little bit about uh, algorithmic sentencing, where you, you know, the judges wanted to sentence people on their objective likelihood of committing another crime, but then either because of proprietary secrecy of the company that makes the algorithms or because the algorithms are so complicated that they can't un unwind them, they don't either know or won't be told how it's making this decision. And is it using criteria that would violate our norms, like you live above 125th Street in Manhattan, and so we're giving you a higher sentence, which is just a proxy for race. So you know, the, the, if these issues, you know, that's in the moral, political, legal domain, but in the epistemic domain of the sciences, they're analog questions that you might ask. What kinds of criteria are actually being emphasized in this? And so, so that's, I think that one of the, so, so, so what, what is the alternative to this opacity or what is it, we know what the gain could be. It could increase our capacity. It could give us a kind of objectivity beyond human judgment. Um, um, but it, it costs us in this, in, in what we can interrogate. Uh, but suppose that it worked. Suppose that it was completely, we, we were completely happy with it. Um, would that be enough in the scientific applications of AI? I don't mean whether what you buy on Netflix or, or Amazon. Or, you know, it's, I, don't, I, I certainly don't mind not knowing the algorithm by which it tells me I might like a movie if I like the movie. Um, but and this suggests this question of you know, what, whether even good, excellent prediction in the scientific domain would satisfy us. And here, I just want to end with um, a reflection that Maxwell, James Clark Maxwell, had um, back in the, in the 19th century that I thought was really rather beautiful. And Maxwell, just by way of background, had done these very mechanical representations of electromagnetism, gears and ball bearings, and you know, really, you know, with st strings and rubber bands, and he loved doing that. But he's also the author of the most abstract treatise on electricity and magnetism that used the least action principle, and that had, you know, didn't, that doesn't go by the pictorial sensorial path at all. So in this little, very short essay he wrote, he said some people gain their understanding of the world by symbols and mathematics. He says, others gain their understanding by pure geometry and space. And then he says there's some others that find an acceleration in the muscular effort that is brought to them in understanding, feeling the force of objects moving through the world. He says, what they want are words of power that stir their souls like the memory of childhood. 
So you have these three kinds of people. And he says, for the sake of persons of these different type, whether they want the paleness and tenuity of mathematical symbolism, or they want the robust aspects of this muscular engagement, we should present all of these ways, and it's the combination of them that give us our best access to truth. And I think that what he was actually talking about in some ways was himself, that this is what he wanted. And if you go back to one of the great old English origins of the word understanding, under doesn't mean beneath. It actually meant among. And standing, or standen, was was different forms of standing. It's almost like you're sitting in a grove, or standing in a grove of, of different trees. And I think what he suggests, that, that the trees is not part, that's my metaphor, and that's not part of the Old English. But, um, and we see that in other languages as well, like Feshtayan and so on. I think that that sense of being among these different ways of grasping the world, some predictive, some mathematical, some, you know, even something as abstract as a black hole. There are models that use swirling water like a bathtub around a bathtub drain to understand the dynamics of the ergosphere. I, that, the ability to, to, grow, to stand among these different things might be something that we want. And whether we can, we can make use in different ways of AI or whether AI will only be part of that understanding seems to me to be known. Thanks. Thank you. So, Peter, um, there's one straightforward response. When you say the network is inscrutable, that's a very sort of early, simple version. What, one interesting thing happening are um, what are called autoencoder networks, where you force the network through a constriction, um, and you force it to have a low-dimensional representation after it's gone through this high-dimensional unpacking. And there's been a lot of really interesting results where you then look at these internal representations and find they're interpretable. And so it, it, it's a very simple version just to say it's a big network and the output comes. Um, you can ask the network to help you find a representation. And there are a number of interesting examples of what comes from those. Yeah, I've seen them. There are a bunch of different ways of sampling in, in the space of, uh, that, that, you, that can help you. But a lot, certainly the people that do a lot of this imaging work uh, find that they are unable to unwind. But, but again, what I'm saying isn't sampling. It's something different that's a little more recent, which is as, as part of training the network, you train the network through an internal constriction where you ask it to find an interpretable representation. Mm -hmm. And so it's a very different architecture from just you look at the network and figure out what it's doing. It's you, you train the network to teach you a representation you can understand. And, and there's, there are very interesting examples of that working. So I'm, I'm actually not. I mean, I, I understand the sense in which you say the networks are inscrutable, but I'm actually surprised that you think people are scrutable. <laughs> <laughs> which is, um, you know, I, certainly if you ask somebody why they decided something, they will make up a story. But whether that story has, I mean, there's very good evidence that in many cases that story has nothing to do with what actually happened. I think that's true. I mean, I, but I, but. You sometimes you can sometimes get farther with it. I mean, at least that was the that was the hope. Um, so I I would think that, that there's actually a better hope, particularly if you want to have networks that have the property of understandability, which is the kind of thing Neil was talking about, to actually have AI things that are truly understandable how they may 
made the decision. I think that that's, I think there's more hope of that than there is with yeah, I think, but I think there's two diff there's sort of two orthogonal problems that are getting mixed up here. One of them is how much access does the system have to its own processes? And then the other one, which is actually the sort of scientific problem, is is what the system is outputting in some important sense a representation of what's actually out there in the world? So if you sort of think that all of human cognition, or at least a lot of it, is this inverse problem about you've got a bunch of data that's coming and you want to reconstruct what it was out there in the objective world that it was creating that data. That's the, that's the central problem of something like a visual system and it's the central problem of science. There's two different things. One of them is do you actually understand what the process is that, that is enabling you to solve that inverse problem? And then the other one is have you solved the inverse? Do you have something that looks like a solution to the inverse problem? Do you actually have a representation, whether it's accurate or not, about what's going on in the in the world outside that's leading to that pattern. So for so example... To answer that second question, though, you have to have some criterion of, of the quality of the solution. And and so, and you know, that's a very well-studied thing in classifier theory and so on of, you know, there are many measures of the quality of the solution when you decide to basically, you know, cluster things and so on. And, you know, it, so, you can kind of pick your measure yeah, but, I mean, but I and, think the, and you can measure how good I mean, it is under that measure. I mean, I should say that, you know, it's not that people said, oh, well, humans make judgments, that's fine. Yeah. In fact, that's what led in the first place to the development of mechanical objectivity, was that they didn't like relying on those uh, right. judgments, even by people like Goethe and Albinus, because it, it, it you know, they, they felt that it was obscure. And when it began to be a real problem was when it proliferated in the 19th century. D Danny, what was Marvin's line about not understanding something unless you know it lots of different ways? Yeah. He had a nice way of saying that. In your early atlases, uh, we see the power of platonic thought. I mean, and, yes. and, and the yes. extension of Neoplatonism yes. through the late That's how I think of it. It's a sense that you can, you can find a, a pure form that lies behind the myriad particularities that we encounter. So this is Plato's cave, in fact. Um, so in, in, in cluster theory, that's, that's considered a bad algorithm. So that's considered... That's what it is. Well, it's a bad algorithm. So there is one way, I mean, there is a way of representing clusters, which is to, in some sense, pick the center of the cluster and say, I'll pick all the things that are closest to this. Um, the better algorithms like vector support methods actually pick a bunch of outliers and say, I'll pick anything that's closer, that I, anything farther out than this I won't consider in the cluster. So there, there, there are lots of interesting examples. I mean, in the, in the history of, of, of classifying images by scientists, they, uh, there are a bunch of different strategies. One was to take the most perfect extant instance, right? You, actually, the best skull. Another was to take the best skull and abstract from that and make it even more perfect, maybe geomet geometrizing it in some way or making it into a perfect harmony of measures. Uh, another was to take a, an extreme example um, or an average. They took all, you know, there were there were atlases that would take like many livers and weigh them all and find the average weight of a liver, and then that became the the the, the notion. That's more like your center choice. Uh, that, that, that you were saying. And then the, in, in, um, in the biological domains, very often uh, they would take the, uh, the first 
discovered instance becomes the <laughs> yeah that's, that's the type specimen the type specimen right. that's and you know which is even stranger right yeah, I mean, so you know, Harvard for those who haven't seen it Harvard has this amazing room of drawers in the museum and you pull open the drawer and there's what look, look like little fur pelts and the fur pelts might be like for a beaver or a squirrel and it's not a beaver it's actually the beaver it is the ur beaver all beavers are defined so by these the are beaver all, I mean, and they've actually become much more important recently because they're now sequenced and they're used to do genotypes and phenotypes so but you can see that there's a struggle to try to figure out how to make a representation of a class of things that are different you know, right? and, yeah. and, and but I guess what I'm saying is, is in cluster theory, which uh, clustering algorithms, mm -hmm. take the extreme techniques, the techniques, clustering techniques. Yes. I guess the the ones that work less well in practice mm -hmm. are the two that you mentioned before, which is pick the one, pick the one that's closest to the center, or make up an imaginary one that's in the center. Those actually don't work very well. Right, the first one they happen to be found. Well, it turns out that the ones that seem to behave the best in practice are is something that w was not in any of your lists. Mm -hmm. and I'm, I'm not sure if this is ever you know, done in atlases, but it's, it's basically what are called support vector methods. Mm -hmm. where the support vector is basically the set of things that are right on the edge. In, and so you, you define it by things that are barely within the category. So, so Dan, I mean, is the, the measure that you have some kind of objective measure of what the things are that are being clustered independently of the cluster? So that's the problem that Peter is raising, is when you're doing science, right, you, you're in this situation in which you're trying to actually do the clustering, and you're trying to figure out what the thing is that's generating the data that you want to cluster Your machine in producing the outline. It's a much harder the galaxy. Another, right? It's a harder problem than, than say, classifying galaxies. Yeah. When you're looking at something and you don't know, like you're looking at a candidate black hole with you know, right. a surround, exactly. and you don't know what it's going to look like, it's different than sort of saying, well, there's three kinds of galaxies. I want to classify them. This one, I know it looks like one of those. You know, then you're in a different, you're yeah, in a think, much easier I think problem. the problems seem to proliferate off Earth, right? So, so out of Plato's cave is fine when you can wander around and pick up the turtle or the beaver. But when you're drawing the canals of Mars, you know, you, you, don't, Actually, you I, don't have the muscular, you don't have the symbols, right? You just have geometries that it turns out you're imposing. You're imposing I, 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 on the mechanical I disagree. I, I actually think Neoplatonism is never fine. <laughs> and actually this so all this, I'm saying is as a historical but, progression Platonism works for those people who have philosopher kings and can wander and pick up the beaver it works less well when you're relying on a telescope and looking at a surface of a distant planet but in fact, no, but in fact I think that the reason that this so if you look at these methods for machine learning there are so you're describing support vector machines where it's a mathematically well-defined process to do, make a cluster. We have two clusters, and you try to draw the hyperplane that separates them with the maximum margin, which is a good idea mm -hmm. and works extremely well, also in high dimensions. And then, of course, the stuff on the edge of this margin, so, so the support vector is defined. And then you could also do k-means clustering, which is the other one. You to pick a representative example, and you say, oh, we can put these together. And you find that both of them work okay, but of course, you know, 
there isn't, aren't actually necessarily clusters. There's no definition of what a cluster is. Well, these things will have examples that overlap with each other, so you can't, you have things that impinge on the other clusters. There is no, you know, abstract, ideal cluster that's there. And so you are stuck with, as you said, you have to come up with some reasonable Bayesian prior to say, okay, here's how we're going to deal with this situation. Now, what's, what's wonderful about the current time, about these artificial intelligences, is actually these, these inscrutable objects, these, these deep neural networks, which are very good at actually doing these kinds of clustering decisions mm -hmm. for reasons we don't know. As I love your, your quote, that we gain capacity and opacity at the same time. And this is true. I mean, this is actually, as you say, this is how human beings operate also. And so we actually, now we have this nice feature where we admit these artificial intelligences which we are not going to understand in more, roughly the same way we don't understand humans into our, our spectrum of models that we're going to trust in order to do things like look at medical images where are extremely important that we have in addition to you know, uh, radiologists looking at, at medical images. We also should say, let's run, run them by the deep neural network and see what they say too. So I think that you know, it's actually rather nice we now we have other, other artificial intelligences with whom to collaborate. Yes. We don't know what they're doing, but we also have other methods that we can compare, like things like support vector machines and, and well-defined mathematical methods where we know what's going on, which actually incidentally is what happens in Netflix. What Netflix does is not actually a deep neural network. They, they have this matrix completion algorithm where they sample people's they, it's well-defined mathematically, it's very labor-intensive, but I, you know, we could walk through it and say, okay, here's what's happening inside your computer exactly, and here's why it works. So I have one that, more yeah. thing, though, to, to what you said, which is that actually in, in many examples, there is an outside way of measuring the quality, which is if you're going to do something with the decision, it's the utility of the success of, like of doing whatever. Exactly. Right. Cancer That's right. Okay. So, so, so there are many systems in which you can say, well, this clustering technique was better than that one right. because it corresponded more to the way that we use the, well, the decision. Most useful clustering. But the what the thing is, you know, it, it's right. it's easier if you have other independent tests. You can say, okay, well, let's go to a higher frequency. Uh, and actually, I think there's a great example of that, which was done sort of by accident with the example you said about the type specimens, which is, you know, basically. Uh, the grouping of animals in terms of genuses and species and things like that was done by people deciding, well, the important character is, you know, the shape of the jaw or, you know, the number of tailbones or something like that. And what was interesting was that was all done pre-DNA mm -hmm. and actually even pre-necessarily everybody that was doing it believing in evolution. Mm -hmm. but. Then when we got the ability to sequence mitochondrial DNA and got some insight into the underlying process, it turns out almost exactly all those judgments were correct. They had picked the correct character and so on. So their, their clustering method, although it seemed very arbitrary, in fact, exactly yeah. reproduced the I mean, one way you might rationalize life. that you know, is so. that if you're, you're an explorer and you're hiking in the Amazon and you, you, know, you find this this turtle and you want to say, well, this is a new turtle. This is, this is a turtle. No one's seen a turtle that's of this species. You would probably not choose one that looked almost like one, that the extreme example of the new turtle that looked a lot like an old turtle. You'd look for a turtle that was pretty different. Yeah. So you're, you're actually prejudiced towards a type specimen that is more 
distinct than the marginal one might but, but, be. But, 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 exploring something that's never been seen before, I'm thinking here of Leeuwenhoek's submissions to the Royal Society, yes. where he's drawing a sperm and he inserts a homunculus. Mm -hmm. right. mm -hmm. So that's, that seems to me a kind of early example of what I call the, the, the spring of narcissist problem, right? You, if you, when you see something like looking for a black hole, no one knows what a black hole is going to, a supermassive black hole, what the form of the shadow is going to be. I mean, there are models, there are simulations, there, you know, there's, we have some idea, but no one knows. It's not like looking at a known uh, galaxy and, and, that, and then saying, how does my method, does method match up with what we already have seen at not as good radio telescopes? Yes, something that's misleading in the way we've been talking about this is modern clustering algorithms don't give you true force, they give you distributions. So they, they get soft clustering, a hard clustering like k-means will miss something really important just over the boundary. Modern clustering algorithms give you distributions of being associated with things. This is digital versus analog. Say again? It's digital versus well, so, analog. Well, yeah, it's, it's probabilistic. So, you know, applied to this, you don't get the image, you get PDFs over families of images. And well, that's how modern clustering I mean, works. I think and so we've been sort of describing true-false outcomes. But some and, of these the, are, are designed to classify galaxies one by one into categories. Right. Yeah, yeah. But in, the, in modern classification, you, you don't get the classification, you get the probabilities of associations. And you know, the classifier wouldn't tell you the difference between 4951 and 0, 100 likelihood. Modern classifiers give you the classification, but they also give you uncertainty on top of that. There's an interesting contrast if you're looking at humans, and especially if you're looking at kids, in that one of the things that people have discovered that's really interesting is if you're looking at kids' categorization, there certainly seem to be some kinds of processes that are doing things in a kind of associative way that are essentially looking for distributions. But by the time kids are linguistically categorizing things, they have something that's this much more essentialist, science-like category, almost like a, a, a kind of, a, a well, it is a natural kind category. So what they think is that the thing that you're pointing to when you say something about a dog is actually has nothing to do with any distribution of the properties of a dog. They think it's whatever is the underlying causal category, whatever is the underlying causal set of properties, which is giving rise to some set of uh, some set of data, some set of things that you're perceiving, which could turn out to be, which could turn out to be completely wrong. So that really abstract notion about what a category is that comes in science, the kind of natural kind uh, idea, that it's whatever is out there in the world that's causing this set of correlations among, uh, among data, that actually seems to be what the four-year-olds think that a category is. And not the idea of the, uh, not the idea of the distribution. I mean, they're, you can show that they can detect the distribution from the time they're infants, right? So they, they are, in effect, doing the clustering. But their conception of what's going on with the clustering, even when you're, even when you're three or four years old, is that it's this, it's this abstract underlying causal system that's actually giving rise. So, so the sort of Bayesian, the Bayesian picture seems to be very, very, very deeply built into the, the way we're even thinking about categories. Okay. Uh, so I guess the last comment I would say that the, you know, it may be that in the trees that stand around us in understanding that AI will actually come in as more than one tree and that there may be different ways that AI will function in that not, it won't be just the AI tree and the differential equation tree and the 
analog model tree and, and so on, but that AI may stand in different ways and in, in, in different forms of clustering in particulars in probabilistic distributions and so on. I, I think we ought to remain open to that possibility too, that more than one AI 